You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. John 6 today, so if you have your Bibles, feel free to join us there. If you have a phone, or we'll have it on the screen. Uh, Today, we're going to begin a seven-week series uh, focused around these seven provocative statements of Jesus that are called the I Am Statements of Christ. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. That is this week. And he goes on to say six other statements, that I am the light of the world, that I am the true gate that I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and life, that I am the way, the truth, and life, and lastly, that I am the true vine. And we're going to spend these next two months walking through these pivotal statements in greater detail. And in this, we get to see Jesus speak about himself. A lot of people have a lot of things to say about Jesus. But Jesus, in these statements, tells us exactly who he is. You know, we live in a world that has a lot to say about most everything and everyone. In fact, today, you can be shamed in some ways for not having an opinion, for not taking a side. Silence can be seen as violence to some. A few months ago, we talked about Consumerism. We've talked about how consumerism has affected Christianity. And one of the ways that consumerism, which is this all-consuming desire for more, has shaped us in this society is by creating a society of individuals seeking to live out their own personal freedoms and satisfy their own unique desires. It is something that we're grateful for. But we have to understand its innate dangers. And one of the ways that consumerism corrupts us is that it allows us to become so analytical. We become masters of evaluation. We are quick to make judgments and critiques and arrive at opinions or create stories about what is in front of us. I mean, yesterday I was at Dairy Queen, which sort of, it's true, but it's also confession because Nikki's in here and I haven't told her I was at Dairy Queen. Uh, I am a weak man. And so it was my birthday and uh, you can justify a lot of things on your birthday, can't you? (laughs) And so I was at Dairy Queen and this guy in front of me took his drink and then he handed it back and I I don't know why, I was just like, oh, here we go. He didn't do anything. He just handed the drink back and then he got a little container of drinks and I thought, what does he need that? And I thought... Lord, why am I even doing this? We have become so prolific at evaluating all that goes around us that it often goes unregistered in our minds. We don't know why we do it. We don't know where it became, came from. We just, we do it. And so today, we have or we will evaluate many things. We've probably had opinions and evaluations on how we slept, on our spouse, on our kids, You had opinions about the way that you got to church today and opinions about those who were driving around you as you were coming into church today. You evaluated the songs that we sung. 
Today, in this moment, you're evaluating me. You will critique our church. You will leave here today. You will talk about how you felt, if you agreed or not agreed, what you'll have for lunch or what you won't have for lunch. And if you're like me, you'll continue to evaluate whether you want to be a Cubs fan anymore. It's a fire cell. And it's not that asking those questions are wrong. It's that we answer them believing in our hearts that we have the type of wisdom and authority to answer them well. Individualism through consumerism has allowed us to esteem ourselves as the only true authority in our lives. And from that position of authority, our opinions no longer are benign evaluations. They're malignant verdicts. Our opinions become the decree of a sovereign king or queen where the whole world around us must submit to them. We victimize the world around us because it's no longer about your character or your virtue. It's simply about what I think of you. Social media has given us a mouthpiece to make opinion and what you believe in far more important than your character and who you are as a person. And so when we arrive at the Gospel of John, whose greatest desire is to help us understand that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we come to the words of Jesus, who reveal who he is by his authority, we must ask ourselves, whose authority here gets precedence? Who gets priority? Mine or his? about what I think about Jesus or about what he says. And so can we be honest enough to realize that whether we know it or not, we have all formed an opinion of Jesus. And it serves as a lens in which we see him and his teachings and the whole of Christianity. In fact, there isn't a person in the whole of history that demands so many to do something with him. Jesus demands everyone to do something with him. Everyone in every time period from the moment of his birth has had to do something with Jesus. Everyone almost across the globe today has had to do something with Jesus. You have had to do something with Jesus. And so if there ever isn't a moment to be awakened to the innate dangers of our own personal opinions and evaluations that become flawed truths that we govern the world by. It's this moment. Because in the words of John, we find the authentic Jesus, the true Jesus, the Jesus that doesn't submit to your opinions or your preferences, the Jesus as he says it. And what we will find in John's gospel is far more glorious and beautiful, and we have the mind to comprehend. And so let's turn to John 6 today. And and just to give you a bit of context before we jump into our text, starting in verse 25, this is coming out uh, of a a day, a prior day, where Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. We know that that number probably is closer to 15,000 because in this day they did not record women and children. 
And so Jesus miraculously feeds almost 15,000 people uh, essentially through a young boy's sack lunch, bread and fish. And the, the people in that crowd are so overtaken by Jesus that they try to violently overtake him because they see in him someone who will be their king, someone that will lead them up against their oppressor in Rome and deliver them into fame and glory again. Jesus escapes, and that night, our scripture records another miracle that occurred. His disciples left, Jesus continued on his way, and it says in the middle of the night during a storm that Jesus walked across the water to be with his disciples. And that next morning, those who were in the crowd are perplexed on where Jesus is. They see one boat gone. They, did, they saw that the disciples left, but they didn't see Jesus in that boat, but they hear that he's in Capernaum, and they get in their boats, and they take off across the Sea of Galilee to find him again. And that's where we pick up here in John 6, verse 25 through 51. Let's read this together. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the son of man, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven But my Father gives to you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, will never, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so the the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the, and that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you humbly uh, in front of this word, in front of your word. We know that it brings us life. We know that it is like a sword that pierces us. So Lord, I pray that your word would do its work. Your word does not come back void. And so Lord, will you by your spirit move us, convict us, help us to find joy in all the areas that our hearts long for. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. You know, multiple times in scripture, Jesus has asked a question that he doesn't respond to. He just goes straight to the heart of the matter. He gets to the issue at hand. And the issue at hand here in this crowd in AD 31 is that these people are seeking Jesus not because of him. They are seeking him because of what he might give to them. They see Jesus as their meal ticket, the one that will provide for them all of their worldly needs. And it's really quite easy for us to see ourselves in this crowd too, isn't it? Seeking to find Jesus because we want something from him, hoping that he can satisfy the various longings of our hearts, hoping that he can meet our needs. Jesus is telling everyone that followed him across the sea that if you're seeking after me for anything less than just me, you will be left lacking. It is about me. You know, all of us have, over this course of years, experienced a long, seemingly endless season of abnormality and hardship from a pandemic to political strife to increased solitude and life change. All of it has exposed so much of the longings of our hearts I find that we have yet to realize how deeply we have been changed by this past season. We hunger for so many things. We find ourselves lacking in so many things. Yet, have we realized, do we know that even if all of the longings of our hearts were satisfied in this world, our hearts would still be restless? Restless that even if all of your most immediate needs were met in this moment, there would yet be another that would rise up in its place. Why? Because what you hunger for will never be satisfied on this earth. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. But this crowd, it has one thing on its mind, bread. It's a good thing to have in your mind. And it's apparent that the only thing they want from Jesus is bread. They grumble against him and they demand a sign and they say, hint, hint, Moses, he gave us bread. Maybe you want to do the same. And constantly, Christ compels them that there is something greater that they hunger for. Jesus describes himself as the bread of God that came down from heaven to bring life. 
And almost comically, this crowd looks at Jesus and say, yes, sir, give us that bread always, as if he's talking about some physical super bread, a a mutant version of a donut with whole wheat and quinoa in it that's a croissant and a biscuit all together. Yes, give me that super food. I want that kind of bread. They're blind, spiritually blind, because throughout this whole conversation in John 6, both the crowd and Jesus compare the miracles that happened on the mountainside when he fed 5,000 and the present circumstances of the hearts of those presents to God's people in the wilderness. After God rescued his people from Egypt who were in slavery, he feeds them. In the desert for 40 years, manna, bread, rains down from heaven. The manna, the bread that was given to these people was meant to sustain them, but yet never to satisfy them. They were always hungry the next day. And all of them went on to die. What the people here in this scene were supposed to see in the feeding of the 5,000 was something greater than Moses has arrived. The bread that has come from heaven, the final gift of God to meet their greatest need. But they can't see it because all they can see is their most immediate need. And could that be said of us? And what is their greatest need? It is a relationship with God himself. It's what the people in the wilderness missed. It's what the people in this crowd are missing. And it's what the Father does not want us to miss today. And the next phrase that Jesus says is mind exploding. It is knock you down, snotty beauty, power. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This isn't about gluten, it's not about wheat, it's me. Now this phrase, I am, is deeply symbolic. It's the words that God spoke of himself to his people in the Old Testament. He said, I am, I am who I am. He's referred to as the great I am, which means that he is the only self-existent one, the only self-sufficient one, the only perfection that we can find, the definition of wholeness, without void, without darkness. I am who I am. And 200 years later, before the arrival, well, I should say 200 years before Christ was born, the Greeks translated the Hebrew scriptures into their language. It's called the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the Greeks translated the word, I am who I am, into ego in me, which means I am, I am, all sufficient. And so when Christ says, I am, he is saying, ego Ami, I am the bread of life. You know, some in this world have an opinion that Jesus was just a great prophet, that he's a wonderful teacher of morality. But listen, everyone in that scene in 31 AD knows exactly what Jesus is saying. Ego ami, I am, I am. He is saying and claiming to be divine. And it is the grumbling of the people around him that will ultimately kill him because they resent that he said it. And so when Christ says that I'm the bread of life, 
He's giving us a metaphor to help us understand this phrase, ego ami. He's trying to help us understand what it means to be the great I am. God is so far beyond our ability to comprehend his goodness and his love and his holiness and his justice and his peace and perfection, far beyond our capabilities. But out of his love for us, God uses ideas and concepts that, that we can begin to understand him a bit. Not fully, but understand a bit of his fullness, his holiness, his love, what it means to be I am. We don't know what ego amin fully means, but we know a little bit about bread. Bread is a staple of our diet, and it's good. I mean, I'm thinking about bread right now, in this moment. I, my family's here, and I know in this moment they're thinking about bread. Bread is a staple of our diet. And it would have been much more meaningful to the Israelites in that day because bread is symbolic for God as their caretaker. Bread would have been a part of every feast and festival that they would have ever done. And so bread for them represents something more than it does to us. But today, it represents a very vital commodity. Bread, is it not security and peace and knowing that we have some stored away? Bread is comfort in its texture and possessing. It is energy and vitality through its nutrients. It's enjoyment through its taste and sharing. It's wholeness as we gather around it with others. And this is what Christ is saying of himself, that he is the bread of life, that he is the one that brings security and peace and comfort and life and enjoyment and wisdom that he and he alone is what truly satisfies. And to come to that bread, to feast on that bread, what must we do? He says we must believe. We must believe. Christ says that it is God that draws the hearts of men and women unto himself that we are incapable of leading ourselves to God, that God draws, compels his people towards himself. If you think of bread and you think of it being baked and fresh in a room, you know the aroma. You know the smell of bread. In the same way, God allures the hearts of humanity towards himself, all who can smell it all who can sense it, all who can rest, rec recognize their desperate need for consuming it. The Jewish crowds of this day didn't get it. They didn't see God as something that you consume, that you are in relationship with, but as one whom you please. What do you, what do we do for this work? Jesus says, if we come to him, we will not hunger. If we believe in him, we will not thirst. To come and believe and to put our faith in Jesus Christ is to find the truest satisfaction of our souls, to find the truest rest in our hearts. Sinclair Ferguson, who's a pastor, said it this way. He said, faith is like eating something for which we have been famished. It is like drinking something for which we have been thirsting. It is discovering in Jesus Christ that the heart cries of our soul are all met in him. Are you famished this morning? Are you thirsty? 
Jesus says, feast on me. And you will not hunger. Drink of me and you will not thirst. Eat of this bread that I give and you will have eternal life. Eternal life is a concept that John in his gospel takes great pains for us to understand. And Jesus is recorded in the 17th chapter of John as defining what it means to have eternal life. Jesus says this in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. This is what eternal life is, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have said, sent. Eternal life, according to Jesus, is to know him. And this is not knowledge merely in the cognitive sense, but an intimate knowledge of who he is. An eternal life is a close relationship with God himself, the relationship that every one of us in this room was created for, a relationship that God has been pursuing with his people throughout the course of human history. Those who know Jesus will experience fully in the new heavens and the new earth what it means to have him as his bread. When God will dwell with his people again, and we will see him face to face. But what Jesus is saying here is, is not this intimate knowledge that is just some future hope that we have, but it's a, a present gift that we can know him intimately, closely, personally now. The satisfaction of our soul is not a far off hope, but it is a present and real reality. It is the relationship that we were created for, the intimacy that we crave, the person who will satisfy. He is ours now, the bread of life. The bread is his gift to us, but it came at the greatest cost to him. In verse 51, Jesus says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. God has met our greatest need by giving what was most hard to give, namely his son on the cross. There, the Savior was poured out that we might be filled. His relationship with his Father broken that we might be restored. He has been redeemed that we might be fed. He has saved us so that we might be satisfied. With our eyes fixed on the cross of Christ, we can look at all the needs of our lives and all the longings of our hearts in a new way. The circumstances of your life will not change. But in seeing him and knowing Jesus, our perspective does. Because God has met our truest, deepest longing in the person of the work of Jesus Christ, we can trust him with all of our lesser longings we can feast upon him, know him, and we can rest in his character. But yet it is a great temptation, is it not, for many of us to be in this crowd grumbling, to not be able to see past our own preferences and opinions, to be anything less than the sovereign authority over everyone and everything. The crowd can't believe what they're hearing because all they can see is Joseph's boy. That's Joseph's boy, isn't it? We know his mother. We know his father. He's just the son of a carpenter. He's out of his mind. They can't get past themselves. And if we're honest, we often can't either. We all want to live in a world that looks more like us. We want to live in a world that more closely resembles who we are. 
Our preferences, our critiques, our opinions all communicate that reality. If things were just more like me. And it's to our great stress that it isn't. Yet it's quite perplexing when we consider the quality of our lives. The lacking that we find amongst ourselves, the deep struggles that we face personally, the anger, the fear, the worry that are constant companions in our life. It seems a bit foolish, does it not, to consider the full breadth of our life and ever think the world would be better off if it looked more like us. We all personally yearn for something different and better for ourselves. It's madness to think the world should resemble that. Christ says, I am the bread of life. <laughs> it is an invitation to lose yourself, to make him the center of your world, to feast on him, to bring your desires, to bring your preferences, to bring your wants, to bring your needs and lay them before him, to enjoy him, to love him, to worship him, and find your truest sense of security and value and hope and joy in him. Why? Because he owns them all. He is all of them. We feast on Christ because we don't have them. We don't know them. We spend our lifetimes trying to convince ourselves and find people and read books and read articles and find saying that compel to us that we are enough. Somebody tell me that I'm enough. He is enough. He is enough. And he is enough for you. Friends, may we come this morning hungry. May you see yourself not as you struggle and try to convince yourself that you are. Would you come hungry, longing, needy, Come to the one who gave himself for us. Come to the bread of life and let us feast on him by faith and in him find the truest satisfaction.